1: Foundation Arvin Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor. Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. We have a very special show today planned. We have a return guest, one of the experts on monetary policy, and it's really the week of the Fed announcement. Professor Siegel likes to talk about monetary policy, and Jim Bullard, the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, talks a lot about his views and and challenges the the conventional orthodoxy on on how to set monetary policies. It's going to be good to check in with President Bullard on on the latest. Uh, Professor, maybe do you want to just kick us off? Your reading of both the Fed announcement and, and sort of what's going on in in the markets.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, that that was uh, that was the big event first when when they took out that. Actually, it was interesting. It was exactly the same wording, and I very very rarely see not even one word changed except the removal of a sentence that said you know that the monetary policy was accommodative. That was interpreted by the market initially. As we're nearer to uh, the long-run rate, and that is uh, uh... dovish in the sense that we may not be as aggressive going forward. Now, of course, that was not indicated in the, cut- the dot plots that <laughs> came with it, uh, but nonetheless, I think all the computer programs of all the traders were all set to oh, if they remove accommodative buy, buy, buy. So we saw a little jump there in the market, um, and then of course, Jay Powell just half hour later gets on and he ends his prepared statement with saying. Uh, yes, you all notice we moved that sentence don't read very much into that they <laughs> uh you know uh that is not uh you know meant to uh you know change uh the per future course. Of our monetary policy, uh, as you can see in the uh, in the dot plot, and I think after that people said, oh oh, all right, so it doesn't mean as much as I first thought it meant um of course, I'm very fascinated to see whether uh jim's uh did he at being at the meeting his his take on on uh on that interpretation we kind of had a a kind of a sell off uh certainly in the uh in some of the risk markets uh uh Right afterwards um and so the markets have drifted down i mean they're still in a prime uh, equity markets are doing a prime primary uptrend um The ten year which a couple weeks ago you and know, i jumped up to the three ten range a little softer now it's i think it's trading at three o three three o four uh this morning um uh you know not not too much else is uh happening uh... in the market dollar is a little bit softer also um... on uh... On, on, on the lower uh... lower interest rates um... before i get into questions with with jim um... on this i i wanna uh... set the stage for many of the new listeners here that have uh, not been on when when we've interviewed him in the past and he's been one of the most forthcoming of all the fed presidents in terms of uh, you know volunteering his views and it's been very valuable um, jim m- a number of years ago and in my sense way before <laughs> uh the fed realized it uh, i mean he was at the initial part of a wave which i think is is proved to be true Realized that we are in a lower interest rate world than what you know we grew up in, and I'm not talking about the inflationary 70s and 80s. I'm mean, really talking about even the non-inflationary 2000s. That the normal rate of Fed funds, which was thought three or four years ago by the Fed to be four and four and a half a percent, something which uh, once you subtract inflation, we call our star, um, two to two and a half percent with uh, with a two percent inflation, is actually um, much lower. And, um, uh, I think, I think he's been proved rightly. The Fed has moved that down dramatically from four and a half percent, and their long run is actually just, well, just tickled that three percent range on on the latest, uh, projections. But, um, uh, we can presume, Jim, that you are uh you you don't give a long run projection and if i remember your reasons and they're quite good one it's you think we are in a low interest rate regime but we may jump out of it um, and it's an uncertain of when that will be so you would defer that long run uh projection uh and stay with projections over just the next uh, couple of years uh, uh although the dots uh in the dot plot are not identified. uh we kind of presume that you are at or near uh the lowest level. um If I properly summarized your views, I'm going to give you a chance <laughs>
0: yeah, sure. uh thanks for having me uh and it's great to be here. I always love these conversations uh I have indeed uh been one of the lowest uh sets of dots. I don't give a long run. Uh, dot because except on inflation where we do have a name target but uh, on the other variables I think it's better to think over a two to three year horizon uh, I do think we're in a low interest rate environment not just in the US but globally and you, you're better off recognizing that but then also recognizing that eras change and, and it's possible you could switch to some, you know something more like what was going on in earlier eras, but for planning purposes, I think you should just assume that real rates and the forces that have driven real rates lower over the last 30 years are probably not going to turn around quickly, and therefore you should just plan for being in in a low real interest rate environment for the foreseeable future and then try to conduct the best monetary policy you can within that context.
2: Would you like to enunciate your uh, reasons for why we are in a low interest rate uh, environment?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, listeners that might be interested could consult a speech I made earlier this year called Our Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, uh, which we spent almost as much time on the title as on the content itself. So. Uh, but I think, you know, if you look at that, uh, there are really three reasons why real interest rates are low. Uh, one is low productivity growth in the U.S. Uh, another is demographic factors in the U.S. But those two factors by themselves do put, have put downward pressure on real interest rates, but are not enough by themselves to account for the dramatic decline since the 1980s. Um, So the third factor is the demand for safe assets globally, which remains quite high. I think there are important structural reasons in the global economy for that. And if you put all those factors together, uh, we're in a situation where short-term real interest rates are probably 600 basis points lower than they would have been in the mid-1980s. So if you have a 30-year trend like that, i think it's just prudent to assume that whatever forces you know we're driving that trend they're not going to turn around you know quickly certainly not in a year or eighteen months and so uh... we'll keep an eye on it and see if real rates go up but for now and for planning purposes i think we should just assume they're going to stay low
2: what, uh... when you say big demand uh, large demand for safe assets is that uh, mostly in response to the financial crisis, the shock that followed that? Uh, is it mostly uh, just uh, private demand? Is it regulatory demand and private demand? Is it is it both uh, of those?
0: Um, yeah, I think uh, it is a misconception that this is driven by the crisis, and therefore we're coming, you know, the crisis is now 10 years in the rearview mirror. But I don't think that's the way to think about it. I th- this was a trend that started surely in the mid-1980s and continued through the nineties to two thousands and the current decade and uh... the crisis was a you know obviously a big disturbance in the global economy but that trend has been there much longer than uh, anything to do with the crisis so i do think there are regulatory uh... issues Um, I think that emerging markets during this period have become a much bigger fraction of the global economy, but emerging markets tend not to issue safe assets the same way that the U.S. does. And so you have only a few countries globally that are issuers of uh, high-quality, safe uh, assets, and you have a lot of demand growing over this long period of time, and you also have regulatory issues. Okay.
2: Now, that's an interesting point with the wealth shifting to the emerging markets, emerging India and China, uh, they view the ter- U.S. Treasuries or probably some of the euro bonds as being safe assets, which they're, they don't trust in uh, long-term assets in their own country.
1: Let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Jim Bullard, who's the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, about interest rates, monetary policy. P- Professor, if I could just jump in there. Jim, yeah. I-, I pulled up your paper where you showed the uh, the 600 basis point difference between the the high and low states. And you talked about the- the- this desire for safe assets as contributing to more than half of that 600 basis point differential with, with labor productivity. Uh, you know one hundred and fifty of the the six hundred and, and labor force around eighty seven of the six hundred you want to talk about why that that's it's you know major that the composition of of that difference in in real rates
0: yeah i think yeah that that analysis there suggests that the safe assets demand is the big the big Kahuna in this uh it's hard to get productivity growth you know you're only talking you know. A couple hundred basis points at most so it's hard to get account for the whole 600 through a channel like that or even demographics so there has to be something else going on and uh, and this is my best candidates and many other comments have talked about this over the last decade so or longer than that even so um yeah it's a it's a big factor um and you could you could argue about well why don't these emerging markets why don't they issue safe assets the same way that the u.s. does but i think that's wrapped up with um, politics in these countries uh... The governments generally speaking are not as stable um... and do not have have as long of a history and for this reason the u.s. assets are viewed as safer than anything that would be issued in the emerging markets
2: Jeremy, that was a good question i want to follow up with the six hundred basis points decline is is that's
0: in the real
2: is that yeah. the
0: real rate? Yeah, I think what we did in that, uh to keep things simple and maybe for your listeners to be able to do it in your head. Yeah. Uh you just take something like a one year treasury uh security, nominal treasury security and subtract and a half trailing your favorite measure of trailing uh one year inflation. I like that because then you get uh, a year over year kind of smooth inflation rate, and uh, uh, then you get a one year ex post real return and it was quite high in circa nineteen eighty five and it's it's very low today.
2: What would you say today if uh, uh it is What is your view on today's uh, I, level?
0: I actually did not check where one year treasuries are trading. Today, I like
2: the I'm looking at my Bloomberg screen. Okay. <laughs> the one-year T-bill is uh,
0: 256. Yeah, 256. So on this scale, if you subtract it off the um, the 2% inflation, uh, you'd get it 56 basis points. This is very important for your listeners now. So it's obviously the Fed also affects the short-term real yields. So I think you have to always keep that in mind. But the Fed does not affect the trend in that series. So the point is that the trend has been uh, down over 30 years, and whatever is driving that trend are bigger factors than, than the Fed itself. And then when the Fed goes on uh, you know, rate hike cycles or the rate hike declines, then uh, the short end of the curve is going to follow the Fed around, and so real interest rates are going to change because of that. But... The Fed doesn't affect the trend, and so this was a, an attempt to get at those trend factors. And I think that's the core of the debate around R-Star. What is driving the trend since the 1980s to be so low so that the level is so low today compared to what it was then? What,
2: what do you think that R-Star is
0: today? You know, I still think it's, uh, I still think it's very low, uh, near zero would be at the high end i would say because if you look across countries uh... you certainly you've got even negative nominal rates in in europe and japan still Mm -hmm. and uh... i think that also at the longer end of the curve uh... the very low interest rates globally that's one reason why the ten-year uh... has had trouble getting up over three percent and staying persistently over three percent because internationally uh... a ten-year return of three percent is looking very good compared to what you can get in other countries.
2: Sure. So given your statement,
0: uh we would
2: we would term the monetary policy today restrictive because it is above uh that level, uh half a percent versus you're saying the maximum of zero. You would call this a mildly restrictive, which I think is very appropriate if you're, you know, having the unemployment rate, you know, almost a full percentage point below uh, the natural rate.
0: Yeah, uh, that's right. So you'd have to, uh, to get to a stance of monetary policy, you'd have to do a little bit more work uh, by taking an assessment of where you think inflation is relative to target, it seems to be right at target, and then making an assessment of, any gap measure on real resource utilization that you want to use, and most people would say that the very low unemployment rate today is below their idea of the natural rate of unemployment, and because of that, you'd justify a somewhat higher rate um, than a pure R star calculation would suggest.
2: You know, when, when I looked over the uh, summary of economic projections, it's called SEP um... And we'll move away from that 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 part for for just a moment and in, into that other projections Um i was i was a little surprised to see no movement in uh... expectation of long-run gdp growth uh, definitely there was an upward revision to two thousand and um two thousand eighteen this year i think maybe one-tenth a uh, next year Obviously, the good performance, we're going to be over three over three percent this year, which is certainly higher than what the, the Fed had expected a year ago. Uh, it it seems like the Fed thinks these are all temporary uh, boosts due to the tax cuts and maybe the expenditures, that uh, we have not had any upward shift or permanent upward shift of productivity growth. Uh, Jim, would that be your view also? Uh,
0: if you look at the productivity data itself, um, it it has improved. Uh, I think it's a very noisy series. You have to look at it year over year at a minimum. Um, it has improved, but it's still low compared to what we saw between 1995 and 2005, which was our most recent period of high productivity growth. So it doesn't look like we've shifted to the high productivity growth yet. I wouldn't hold out hope that that can happen. Um, We seem to have a lot of great technology around. It does seem to be diffusing through the economy that should show up in productivity sooner or later. So hopefully we'll get to that. I also think the tight labor market might um, encourage businesses to think harder about how they can use some of this newer technology to improve productivity. So I hold out hope, but if you actually look at the numbers, it it really doesn't look like productivity has improved yet. I did want to say about, you know, just about GDP generally, I did go back and look at expectations as they existed In the Fed and financial markets in January 2017, if you look around that time period, very roughly speaking in round numbers, uh, the the forecasts were for 2% growth in 2017, 2018, 2019, so people had a kind of a flat view of what was going to happen at that point. This is just after uh, President Trump took office. And then since then, we've had about 2.5% growth in 2017. It looks like for 2018, we'll have 3% growth year uh, for the whole year. And then 2019 forecasts look again to be 2.5%. So, relative to that January 2017 view, the economy is surprised to the upside mm-hmm. by about half a percent in the first year, a full percent in the second year, and a half a percent in the third year. So that's about two percent on the level of GDP. I think that that is what has justified the the Fed's uh, rate increases over this time period, and allowed us to normalize policy at, to the extent that we have almost two hundred basis points now since we were at zero.
1: President Bullard, so you you also talk about in one of your recent speeches that you you sort of think that we should go towards more market based ways of looking at to keep the economy going and not get too tight that you that you're you have this view of looking at market indicators more than they have in monetary policy. Do you want to sort of expand on that to how to keep this economy going?
0: Yeah, I think uh, at this stage, you want to think about very carefully about you know how can you make this be the longest expansion on record? How can you keep uh, labor markets performing at a high level? you should be able to draw people into the labor market that have been marginally attached in the past. That should pay handsome dividends if you can get them into jobs and get them uh on so the job skills
2: that they can use going right, in other words,
0: Yeah, and especially uh groups, you know, that have historically had higher unemployment rates like uh Hispanic workers and African American workers. So hopefully we can keep this going. I think um I think models are great, and I'm a model builder myself, and I love models, but I also think that we should be humble about what models can actually do and actually tell us. The empirical relationship between a tight labor market and inflation has really broken down over the last 20 years. It's nowhere near what it used to be, and I think we should accept that. And, and if we don't have that as a, as a guidepost to go with, Uh, We may want to try to look more at market-based signals. And two that I think are highly valuable for the FOMC are the TIPS-based inflation measures and the yield curve. So let me talk about each of those. I think the expected inflation that comes out of the TIPS market, uh, what I love about that is that it's a daily read on the pulse of expectations, and then those traders are taking into account everything that's going on in the economy including the fiscal policy uh impetus that we've had the um uh you know all kinds of risks around the world Italy everything Brexit everything else and they're putting that all together in a single bet on what they think inflation's going to do over the next 5 years if you look at that and um adjusted from a CPI basis to a PCE basis, uh, markets don't really expect much inflation going forward. And they also expect the Fed to be more dovish than the Fed itself says it's going to be. So I I think that's an important signal that there isn't too much inflation pressure in the U.S. economy right now. And then let me just mention the yield curve, because that's been an important issue, too. The yield curve is not inverted today, but uh, we're having a great debate. I think about how to interpret the yield curve. In the past, when it has inverted, that has been a recession indicator for the U.S. economy. We're not to that point yet, so recession probabilities remain low today. But I wouldn't want to knowingly invert the yield curve with monetary policy. Yeah, let
2: me let me speak to that issue because. Um, I think there were a couple of years ago, a study by John Campbell, Luis Vissera, and several others, uh, they looked at uh, the beta of the Treasury bonds, how they correlate with risk markets. And over the last 10 years, 15 years, it's been a negative beta. Um, of course, during the inflationary, 7 and 8 is very strongly positive. Um, so they say we're going to get a flatter curve because uh, people use it as a, a risk hedge. Uh, against the risk markets. Uh, if the Dow you know, drops a 1,000 points, your Treasury is going to go up two and three, and that's going to produce a lot of demand for those Treasuries. So we're going to, because of that, see a, a lot of more flatness in the curve as compared to the previous time, and that may not... Be uh, a signal of uh, coming recession. Although I agree with you, and I do teach that the single best indicator is an inverted curve. If you're going to just use one to to predict the the recession, but um, there seems to be some other reasons why we might get a flatter curve, as we did in the 50s and 60s, as compared to the to the uh, which are more like today's period than than certainly the, the subsequent period.
0: Yeah, um, well, I love John Campbell and and his co-authors, and I would always uh, listen very carefully to their research. But that argument is, uh, this time, a different type of argument, and I've been burned on that being at the Fed because (laughs) I've been on the staff. uh, Certainly in 2000, yield curve was inverted. We poo-pooed it. Sure enough, we went into recession shortly thereafter. Um, In 2006, when uh, Ben Bernanke became chair, One of the first things he did was give a speech that downplayed yield curve inversion, which was going on at that time, even as the crisis was just getting rolling uh, right at that moment. So I think um, traditionally the Fed has not wanted to uh, pay attention to this signal if it conflicted with what our Phillips curve-type models say um but i've been um because i've been burned about that i th- i think we should put less weight on our models and pay more attention to the curve i I, wouldn't, I would have a simpler theory about what the curve is telling us i think the short end is heavily influenced by the f- whatever the feds view of the future of the economy is the long end is more of a market view of uh the future of the economy and when those f- uh, conflict, uh, then you've got policy that's out of sync with what's going on in financial markets.
1: Now, now what's interesting, I mean, on, on one of our press shows, you had talked about that we have lower long-term interest rates because of what's going on globally, that the ECB is keeping rates low, the Bank of Japan is keeping rates low. So that's contributing to why our 10 years is not going much above 3, as you sort of talked about earlier. Yeah. I, and I'd seen at an ECB conference, I want to say earlier this year, um, somebody, uh, I want to say from the Dallas Fed, saying that he was and to, your, to your point on this time is different. He was making a comment on he would read less into incur, inversion because of what the ECB is doing. Um, do you is that just another this time is different that you're you don't want to take into account?
0: You've got a lot of smart people involved and they can make a lot of arguments and I, in some, you know, the intellectual side of me wants to put some weight on all of these, but on the other hand, uh, this has been such a reliable indicator. Uh, over the years that I wouldn't want to try to test somebody's new theory about what's going on. I think there's no reason to do that. I I guess my point is mostly that we don't really have an inflation problem in the U.S. It doesn't look like expected inflation is even at 2% on a PCE basis. So why go test these theories? Why not just accept the signal that we're getting and then track inflation as closely as we can? And then if we need to move, we certainly will move. We're not going to fall asleep at the wheel here. I think you could play things that way instead of relying on on inventing new theories about what's going on with the yield curve. Yeah,
2: let's go, let's go back to the, your interesting statements about the participation rate and and the Phillips curve or the non-existence of the Phillips curve, uh, in, in the, uh, in the current data. Um, we're producing, demand is moving forward at around 200,000 net new jobs a month. Uh, from what we understand, demographics, uh, is providing 100,000. Um that in and of itself, unless we get a rise in the participation rate uh must translate into a fall uh in uh unemployment um now, you know, maybe you know the fed would, that thought and many economists have thought at four and a half percent we would be seeing those uh, inflationary wage increases increase, et cetera it hasn't we're down to three eight three nine. Uh, if we continue this demand, we'd be down to three five and at three five when I look back, there has almost always been uh, that degree of tightness has almost always sparked increases that exceeded productivity growth I mean, do you do you, do you have a view on on that
0: well uh i do i actually gave another talk also posted on the webpage called the disappearing Phillips curve uh gave that at the ECB's conference this summer there uh i, w- I emphasized the difference between the modern era and the older era if you look at the pre 19 1995 era that is an era when inflation expectations were not nearly as well anchored in the US and therefore <clears throat> I, the Phillips Curve uh, correlation was pretty high. That is, the uh, the coefficient that translates an, an unemployment gap into inflation was uh, negative and far away from zero. That was certainly true uh, in the 1980s. If you do rolling samples coming forward to today, uh, you'll see that coefficient get less and less negative and, in fact, uh, really basically zero today. Why did that happen? I think uh, be, after 1995, we had an inflation targeting era. Uh, the Fed implicitly had a 2% inflation target after 1995 and developed tremendous levels of credibility about that inflation target. And uh, uh, the, what happens then is inflation, inflation target has been crazy successful. Yeah. uh the uh inflation, I, mean, is,
2: I don't think anyone has believed we could be as close to it as yeah. we are
0: so what so inflation itself has been low it's been you know relatively close to target the volatility is way down from what it used to be in the old days uh inflation expectations stay very close to target, even in conversations like this, we talk about tenths of a point on uh inflation rate i mean it's ridiculously uh, smooth and stable compared to what it was in uh, in the 70s 80s period. So, because of that, when you try to relate movements in inflation back to unemployment gaps or other types of gaps, you're going to get coefficients that are basically zero. And so, what I'm saying is that the uh, the inflation targeting era has killed off the Phillips curve correlation, and because of that, we can't really take a signal from the labor market anymore about what's going to happen to inflation.
2: Oh no, but uh this is such such important uh information and interesting uh, take on that that the breakdown might be because of the stability of uh inflationary expectations. But getting back uh, and you did mention stimulating that participation rate. Uh so th- th- explain how we reconcile a 200,000 increase with a 100,000 demographics. Is that that steady state? (laughs) Is that sustainable? What is going to converge or cause this to uh, uh, become reconciled uh, in the long run? Or do we have to raise rates more to cut that demand down too closer to a hundred hundred twenty thousand and hope for you know rising productivity to still give us the gdp growth that that we all want
0: yeah well i'm not one that thinks you need to try to slow down uh, uh... growth rate of the economy in order to run a good monetary policy i think you can uh... in this environment you can let the economy run, but keep a very close eye on inflation and inflation expectations, and really just focus on that. And that will give you your signal. If you're if you're moving uh, behind the curve, you you will have to um, you will have to adjust. And I wouldn't want to do that uh, rapidly. But I don't think we're the kind of central bank uh, that uh, you know might have been around in the '60s or, or early '70s where. Theories were not as well developed about the causes of inflation, and they they waited too long. I don't think we would do that. So,
2: if you just but I understand. You. So you're you're very. It's very. It's almost like what Powell said. It also. I mean, and and actually, it's almost a little bit like what Greenspan in the late '90s said. We're gonna, you know, wait until you see the the whites of the eye of inflation. And I, with a breakdown of the curve, there's a good deal of truth to that and sensibility of that. But, but, I'm, but I'm asking is, how? how do, what do you think, should we just wait, or do you think the participation rate will rise that will give us that? I mean, I understand the operation that we should wait, because we don't know enough to preemptively and maybe too strongly uh, tighten, but I'm just wondering what you see as reconcile uh, these forces in the longer run.
0: Uh, I see a couple things as likely to happen, um, or hopeful that they will happen. Um, First of all, on labor force participation, it's on a downward trend because of demographics. Yes. But nevertheless, the 25- to 54-year-old age group, the the participation rate has been rising for that group, and it's still below the pre-crisis level by... um, By a percentage point so it's very reasonable to assume we've got more marginally attached workers there that could come back in we'd like to attract them back into the into the labor market and so i think there are plenty of people to draw in there you've got these groups that were historically disadvantaged and tend to have higher unemployment rates you can continue to draw workers in from those groups that would be very beneficial for the u.s economy so i think there there are um Enough people uh that uh, over the forecast horizon that uh, we can expect to um, have them come in and help us uh, get the output growth that we're looking for and then on The idea that these labor markets are tighter and the firms have to work harder and think harder about how they're going to use technology to improve productivity, I would hope that we can get productivity growth to be higher than it's been in recent years. Uh, That would be a a great boost to the economy as well, so that we could maintain uh, relatively high growth rates over the forecast horizon with low inflation. That would be the hope.
2: Yeah, and in fact, one of the most disappointing things has been, Slowdown in productivity has come in an economic expansion where usually uh, tighter labor markets do spur better productivity and, of course, better alloc- demand for workers, better allocation workers' time that, that shows up in those uh, productivity statistics.
0: I mean, um, just one thing that people are noticing, I think, is uh, these kiosks at fast food uh, restaurants. So that's an example of... You know, that technology has been around. They could have done it before, but now with tight labor markets, they're deciding to deploy that. And um, you know, I don't—I've only seen it a few times, but I don't actually know how well it works. But but that's an example of firms reacting to the tight labor market.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, that 1.8 percent long-run <laughs> GDP—that's. Uh, like what maybe uh... one percent population half percent or so productivity um... that's a, that's a very
0: that's a very gloomy long-term picture and, uh, it sure is and we'd like to see that um, get better uh... so hopefully we'll break out of our low productivity growth uh, regime here but so far that hasn't happened but um... HOPEFUL THAT WE WILL SEE THAT AT SOME POINT. YES. JEREMY, DO YOU HAVE ANY
2: QUESTIONS? you know, I've been I've been monopolizing, Jim, so long. I want to give you a chance. <laughs> yeah, sure
1: enough. I appreciate that. The uh, uh, when I was looking through some of your past speeches also, Jim, and one of the things that, you know, it's a, a little bit off topic from what we're talking about just on the U.S. economy, the, the current monetary policy, but you talked about uh, sort of one of the other topics of the day is the digital currency world, and, and you've been, been speaking a little bit about the chaos in the cryptocurrencies and, and what that, you know, can mean for a more global setting. I was curious if you wanted to share with our listeners, given this a very topical for people, uh, your views on what's happening in in the cryptocurrency market, how it ties into how you think about global monetary policies and and exchange rates.
0: Yeah, I went to the the big cryptocurrency conference in New York City during the spring. Uh, I was the only Fed guy, uh, so I felt like a Christian being fed to the lions. But but I tried to give uh, a perspective from what I know from monetary theory about these cryptocurrencies and maybe some of the things... That I mentioned are not things that the uh, computer science type people that are doing this uh, had thought about before. But uh, just briefly, I mean, you can check it on my webpage, but I can just summarize a few of the things that I said. Um, one is that there's already currency competition in the world, there are many different currencies. So uh, these new currencies coming in have to compete against all those existing currencies. So it's currency competition is not new. Um, I think the any currency to keep its value has to um, impress upon its users that the future issuance policy will be a responsible one. And you certainly see governments that do not have responsible policies, like Venezuela this year. Um, they started printing money to try to pay all their bills, and you got... Uh, too much, uh, too many boulevards, and, and the value of those boulevards went down uh, dramatically, I think they're going to have, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of percent of inflation, so uh, it's it's um, uh, been a disaster uh, for Venezuela. But that points out something that exists in the monetary theory literature, which is any currency... In the models I work with, anyway, any currency has has an equilibrium where it's valued and everyone trusts the currency, but there's also another equilibrium where nobody likes the currency and nobody holds the currency and has zero value. So um, this issue about what's going to control the future issuance policy... For government-backed currencies, it depends on the quality of the government and the government policy. For cryptocurrencies, it depends on what monetary policy is embedded in the code. I don't think that the cryptocurrency world has thought about this carefully enough. Um, And then the other issue is that... But isn't uh, there
2: a limit on Bitcoin? Uh, Yes, there is a limit.
0: uh, Famously, there's a limit on the total number of coins, but then you have these uh, bifurcation paths. Where the user groups can't can't agree on the verification of the ledger, and then they go off in two separate directions, and that has happened with bitcoin and now each of those has a limit twenty one million on uh the total number of coins, but you've doubled in a friedman you know mil Friedman say, well, you doubled the money supply because you now you have uh two paths uh both of which are being um, traded as currency. So, and then finally, you've got this free entry, uh, condition. So anybody can come in and issue currency. What Friedman said about that is if you allow everybody to issue currency, they will do it and you'll get a tremendous oversupply of currencies. So Freeman looks like he's right. Um,
2: That's what happened at the end of last year, and we had all those currencies in a crash
0: after that. Well, you have, at the time I gave that speech, I think there were 1,800 cryptocurrencies have been introduced this year alone. So it's just, uh, it's just, crazy so so that prediction turned out to be just right and uh with all those all these different issuers coming in it's hard to see how all that currency is going to be valued and indeed most of it's worth nothing
1: yeah let me just reintroduce our guest we're talking with jim bullard who's the president and ceo of the federal reserve bank of st louis Going back to sort of more standard currencies, any any thought on on where the dollar is trading and and compared to, you know, given what we're doing in the U.S. versus where the ECB and and those other central banks are that we had last year, very weak dollar, getting a little bit stronger dollar. Is that factoring into your your forecasts and models?
0: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, roughly speaking, the U.S. has surprised to the upside again this year with the strength of the economy, and Europe has, you know, Surprised to the downside slightly, and that's probably um, more or less what's uh, driven the strength in the dollar. <clears throat> You've also got these uh, trade concerns uh, with China, and so that's China is devaluing somewhat to try to alleviate pressure there. Uh, so that's uh, also leading to a strengthening dollar. Do you
2: have any? I'm sure you discuss it prediction. I mean, um, do you think trade, a potential trade war, is something that uh, investors should consider? Or um, uh, uh, is it mostly just wait and see on the part of uh, the policymakers?
0: Well, it's uh, it's certainly on the minds of all my business contacts. Uh, everyone's talking about trade. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say this, I think if NAFTA can get done, I think it will be a very big positive for the u s because it will show <coughs> excuse me if NAFTA gets done, it will show that the trade war does not have to go on indefinitely with unpredictable um imposition of tariffs or removal of tariffs at various junctures, but that instead some concrete deal can be, can be arrived at that actually sets down the rules and establishes those rules. So I think it's very important to wrap up this NAFTA uh, deal if we can, and I think that will provide a big boost. With China, I'm not as sure. It does seem like China's digging in, so I'm not sure that we can uh, reach a deal in in a reasonable time frame uh, with them, but I think uh, the NAFTA deal would show that this can get done.
1: Yeah, and you made a, you made a comment on the the currency maybe China devaluing it, and that you also talked about sort of the dollar strengthening versus Europe because of the strength in the U.S. versus ECB or sort of European economic growth weakness. Do you think it is China devaluing, or is it more the economic signs that uh, it's sort of a actual natural reaction to to slower growth or expectations of China?
0: Yeah, I think. Of course, it's always hard to uh, disentangle. Uh, China has probably surprised a little bit to the downside. Uh, They're a little bit weaker data, and in conjunction with the stronger data coming out of the U.S., that would be a natural uh, move. But how much of this is policy-related and how much of it is just uh, the relative performance of the two economies uh, relative to expectations uh, is a good question.
2: Uh, Jim, going back to the to the Fed, um, you've been under well at least three different chairmen. I mean, obviously Powell, the new one, one before, and Bernanke. I, I don't know, were you on when Greenspan was still there?
0: No, I wasn't on okay. uh, with Greenspan, although I was staff. Uh, staff, uh, okay,
2: yeah. uh, at that time. So t- tell us, uh, how has it changed? How, have have the meetings? changed any character uh in this uh transition. Um I I think honestly Powell has done an excellent job during the quarterly uh news conferences. Uh 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 he's a little bit terser than uh Janet was <laughs> <in> answering <laughs> questions. Um and I don't know whether that also is true of your uh FOMC meetings uh, or not, but well, how do you uh, how do you feel about uh, the new chairman?
0: Uh, I think he's uh, been doing a great job, and the economy has uh, been performing very well. So at some point we'll get um, we'll get more of a test, and and we'll see how the committee can react. But I'm pretty confident that he'll be he'll be good in that circumstance as well. Uh, the committee is. A big committee, 19 people, when it's at full strength, and it works best, in my view, if you have a mix of people that have different backgrounds related, I think, to financial markets, because you do have to understand financial markets and macroeconomics. But um, you know, now we have people that uh, have mostly financial market background. We have people that have mostly research-type backgrounds, and uh, and and others as well, and I think when you get that mix of views, that's the committee is stronger than the sum of its parts. And so I think Jay has been very good about um, which you know, doing the role of chairman, which is a different role. You have to um, listen to everybody's views and carefully slice out a, a consensus uh, viewpoint and lead the committee that way, and he's done a great job on that. I
2: also, I think, is it true that this last meeting was the first one that the new vice chair, Richard Clarida, attended? Yeah. Uh, now, he's, uh, you know, he's actually, am I right? And, and, and Jim, because of your research, you would probably know better than he. He was working for Bill Gross when he came out with that uh, new neutral Yeah. Um, idea. So, I mean, he was like one of the first uh, in your camp.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, uh, Rich has, of course, great background as a Columbia professor, uh, outstanding contributions to New Keynesian macroeconomics, uh, and then lots of experience in financial markets at PIMCO. So I see him as a great addition to the uh to the committee and he was at this meeting so uh it was great to see him uh inside the Fed.
2: No, and that, to say to say the least. Um and um uh we also had Williams move from San Francisco to New York. Uh uh John Williams am I right and he absolutely has also done work on our star. So there's yeah, I mean this is uh, they the, uh, that, that's well represented now uh, in in the Fed group.
0: Yeah, Lavoie and Williams is the original right. um, work on this, and they've updated their model over time, and so they <coughs> really should be credited with moving the committee toward the view that the uh, the R star must be a lot lower today than it was historically. Right.
2: Now, are there there still two vacancies on the board, or, I mean, um, you're not up to full strength on the FOMC yet?
0: Right. Uh, They've got uh, two nominations pending and one that sounds like it might be made here, so still three seats to fill. Um, the president's nominations have been very much mainstream uh, type nominations, and so I think uh, the Fed will be well served by those.
2: You did mention the president, and you know he has expressed some disapproval of the the steady interest rate hikes. I think uh, Jay Powell has responded very well, and he's gotten those questions about whether. He feels pressure from President Trump about uh, raising rates, and he's talked about the independence and what has happened. I mean, is uh, is that also the feeling on on uh, the FOMC?
0: Well, you'd have to ask others on the on the committee, but I think that Chair Powell has it just right. That we have a mandate by law that says you know we're supposed to get the best employment and uh, inflation outcomes that we can. And the committee's trying to make that judgment in an environment where lots of people are commenting on Fed policy all around the world 24 hours a day. And it's not unusual for politicians to comment. In fact, Chair Powell testifies on Capitol Hill and uh, members of Congress and, and senators get to say whatever they want to say about, about policy. So it's not unprecedented that politicians would comment on this. And presidents have commented in the past, just not in the recent past, uh, those administrations decided not to. So I don't really think it's uh, quite as unprecedented as, as people are making it out to be. And to his credit, President Trump has been very consistent on this. He's always said that, you know, being uh, coming from the real estate world, he. He likes low interest rates, so it's, his position really hasn't changed and probably won't change going forward. <laughs> but his, his ability to have influence on this process is through the appointments, and at the end of the day, uh, if everyone gets confirmed, he would have six out of the seven. So he has plenty of ability to uh, shape monetary
1: policy through that. Jim, we're in our final minute here and just want to see if there's, you know, we talked about a lot of broad topics, but uh just want to see if there's anything else that you thought that we hadn't covered that you know, to make sure that it actually reflected all your views and, and things you wanted to get across.
0: It's really fun to talk to uh, both of you, and I hope our listeners enjoy the conversation as well. Uh, as always, there are lots of um, fascinating issues in macroeconomics and monetary policy, and um, I think we covered uh, quite a few of them here.
1: Professor, any final thoughts from you?
2: Well, I was going to just ask him how well interest rates and reserves have set the Fed funds rate. You guys almost get it to the basis point. Do you think we're ever going to go back to what's called conventional monetary policy,
0: Uh, Jim? Uh, I think on the operating procedure, that's something that we'll have to nail down now and have more conversations about exactly how we're going to do this uh, going forward. And uh, uh, but for now, as as far as daily uh, activity it seems to be working well, but as the balance sheet gets smaller, we might want to uh, pin down more details about how we're going to operate. So I see that as a coming attraction in yeah. in There's going be a lot of discussion, not quite yet, but yeah, big issue.
1: Very good. This is a great conversation, Jim Bullard, President, CEO, Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Thank you so much for joining us. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor on Tourism Tree. And our discussion today was not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of us trades or affiliates. I've been listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 132. Have a great week, everybody.
0: For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.